most athletes physiologically have the ability to get to Kona qualifying uh, fitness. I, I, you know, that's sort of a, a central uh, core belief that I have after uh, after working with athletes over a long period of time that, well, you know, pro level uh, fitness might be might be a different thing, and there might be some uh, you know genetic lottery aspects to to getting t- to that level of fitness. Given given the right training over over a sufficient period of time, you know, most athletes are able to hit that sixty five to seventy mils per kilo. That triathlon show one hundred eighty six. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview coach Alan Cousins. Alan was on as a guest previously in episode 79, so more than 100 episodes ago. And in that episode we talked about lactate testing and metabolic testing, how it works, why it's beneficial... We discussed uh, thresholds that you hear us referencing time and time again. So it is a great intro to the physiology behind training and training zones. However, you do not need to listen to that episode before you listen to this episode. I would just carry on with this episode and then go back and listen to episode 79. In today's interview, we discuss uh, VO2 max or aerobic capacity and also just athletic potential in general. But since VO2 max is such an important determinant of endurance performance, whether it's a very short or a very long endurance event, uh, this means that uh, traditionally, since we have thought that VO2 max changes and improvements are quite limited by genetics, it means that also our endurance performance improvements are relatively limited by genetics. However, Alan has a ton of test data from his athletes that he's coached and athletes that he's tested over the years. Uh, he lives in Boulder, Colorado, so he has uh, got a lot of athletes over there, of course, to, to test. And he has shown that this is not really the case. We can actually improve our VO2 max and our endurance performance a lot more than what uh, the common belief about potential improvements is. So that is very inspiring indeed. Uh, Alan says that with the right training, most athletes can get to the level required to qualify for Kona. Uh, so fascinating interview coming up before that big thanks to our sponsors first we have precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com i recently read a great blog post there by andy blow the founder and that post was called a brief history of hydration advice for athletes it goes into the history of hydration science and coaching advice and best practices so actually, I found it a really interesting perspective to to get all that development that has happened over the uh, decades and uh, the last century or so. And it can actually challenge some beliefs that haven't yet died out completely as well. But the quick takeaway, uh, so I'll going to spoil it for you, is that uh, whilst drinking to first is a sensible guiding principle and a basis for how to approach hydration for shorter or low sweat activities, a more proactive and individualized approach is probably what's needed for longer, hotter and higher sweat events, where drinking water to first is unlikely to be sufficient to maintain optimal performance. 
so uh, that's a bit of a teaser and I guess the, the summary of the blog post. Go and read it in full on precisionhydration.com. And if you are training for that longer, hotter and higher sweat event, then make sure to take Precision Hydration's free online sweat test to get your individual hydration strategy and use the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps, to get your first box or tube for free. And a big thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world leaders in wetsuits, trisuits, uh, triathlon apparel, and high-performance eyewear. Their products are used by Olympic gold medalists, Tour de France stage winners, and some of the best triathletes in the world, of course, including Mario Mola, Javier Gomez, Flora Duffy, Katie Safiris, and so on. In a nutshell, Roka's mission is to redefine the standard when it comes to performance in any niche that they enter the market in. You can check them out on roka.com, that's R-O-K-A dot com. And you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. That's TTS as in that triathlon show. All right. So with that, let's get on to the interview with Alan Cousins. Welcome back to that triathlon show, Alan Cousins. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for, thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back, and it's been, I think, a little bit more than 100 episodes since we last talked. So for those listeners that did not listen to that first interview, which we'll, of course, link to, can you give a brief introduction of who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I am I'm a, primarily a coach these days. I, I have a background in uh, exercise physiology, so... Uh, I spent a good portion of the last decade or maybe even a couple of decades uh, testing athletes and uh, with, with a focus on endurance athletes and particularly long course triathletes. Um, I'm, I'm in Boulder and I've been here now for uh, uh, the past, uh, I don't know, 15 years or so. So uh, I've had some good access to some really high level uh, triathletes and uh, you know I've, I've had the good fortune to to test some of the the best athletes in the world and and now uh, yeah I'm just uh, primarily uh, involved in telling them what to do and uh, and consulting and uh, and coaching and I've, I've kind of moved more into that domain yeah that's uh, that's a good overview and uh, you do write some great articles as well and one of them is uh, the reason that triggered me to to email you right away actually after reading that article one of my athletes sent me sent me that article and, and we'll link to it it talked about the trainability of vo2 max or aerobic capacity and and how to uh, train it if it is indeed trainable so so let's uh, dive into that uh, which is the main topic for today so but before that i guess can you just explain what vo2 max is and why it is important Sure. So, uh, so VO2 max is, is the maximal rate of oxygen uptake by the muscles. Um, and it's often expressed relative to body weight. So you'll often hear it as milliliters per kilogram per minute. Um, and it's, it's very important because it's, it's a good general indicator of everything that goes on within the aerobic system. We've got We've got both central aspects to it where there's a there's a component that's related to how much cardiac output is being being uh, 
being put out by uh, by by the heart. Um, and then there's also a muscle aspect to it, which is the the ability of the muscles to extract oxygen from the from the blood that they're receiving. So we've got we're really covering a lot of bases when we say that an athlete has a high VO2 max. We know that they have a really strong central system and the ability to get a lot of oxygen to the muscles. And we also know that they have a really strong ability within the muscles to, to, to get oxygen out of, uh, out of the blood that's delivered to them. So that their, their aerobic power is very high. And, um, for, for most events, I mean, certainly all of the events that, uh, y- your audience is going to be interested in the, they're all very aerobically dominant. I mean, you know, any any event beyond a minute in duration is is really heavily uh, reliant on energy production from the aerobic system. So, uh, w- when we have a metric that shows you how strong that aerobic system is on, in a global sense, it, it's very important for the sort of sports that we deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you mentioned there that the the unit of measurement being milliliters per kilo, kilogram body weight per per minute. So can you give some benchmarks? Because I'm sure a lot of people will have seen estimates on their Garmin's, for example, of what their VO2 max might be, or or maybe even gone and uh, had a test uh, taken. So what would be some benchmarks for different demographics? If you talk a little bit about what a professional might see versus a high level amateur or beginner athlete and, and also differences between males and females and 20 versus 50 year olds and the likes sure yeah the world-class levels are uh, are in the range of 75 to 85 mils per kilo for for men for uh for, for more of the short course type athletes um and and generally about 10 mils per kilo less for for females so um, you know, most of us, when we're looking at the numbers that our Garmin might be seeing, you know, f- 55 and 60, uh, it really puts in perspective just just how how strong the uh, the aerobic system in in those world class athletes is. Um, Ironman athletes typically are a little bit lower than than short course athletes in in my experience. Um, more in the range of 70 to 80 mils per kilo for for the guys and 60 to 70 for the, for the females. Um, Kona qualifier type athletes are starting to get down a little bit below that in the 65 to 70 range for for guys. Um, and then average, I guess, for sort of your your middle of the pack recreational athlete would tend to be more in that 50 to 60 range for for guys, and maybe 40 to 50 for uh, for, for females. Um, the aging question is really interesting because. The, the rate of decline with, with age is very different depending on whether you're a lifelong trained athlete versus a, a sedentary athlete or, or even a, an athlete who was serious and then, and then retired, you know, and then stopped. Um, there's been a lot of, a lot of studies that have shown that in athletes who train over the course of their entire life, um, the, the drop in VO2 max per decade is actually pretty small. It can be as low as 5%. So when we see these, you know, 70, 75-year-old athletes who still have VO2 maxes higher than, you know, an untrained 20-year-old, it uh, I, I think it gives a, a little bit of hope and it gives a little bit of an indication of just 
um, what, what a potent uh, stimulus exercise or, or exercise over the entire lifespan is. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that is impressive indeed. Uh, and uh, I, I guess one, one follow-up question then is uh, in terms of the different disciplines, is it uh, more or less similar if you're a similarly strong cyclist and runner, would you have very similar values on cycling and running? And what about swimming even, mostly theoretically, because that's quite rare for us to test in practice, but, uh, but can you talk about those different disciplines? Yeah, sure. Yeah, typically there is a little bit of a gap between between the bike and the run. Um, it, it depends a little bit on the the size of the athlete. Um, athletes who are a little bit larger will tend to be able to uh, to narrow that gap a bit more than than smaller, lighter athletes. But uh, somewhere in the range of five to ten percent would be a would be a pretty typical gap that I, I would see. Uh, when bike and run testing, the, the same. But the, run, the running via two max would be higher than the Correct. than the butt. Yeah, yeah, and as you said, swimming, swimming, we, we have done some via two max testing um, in in the pool when I was at the Institute of Sport. We used to wheel the uh, the met cart up and down alongside the the pool, but uh, yeah, typically it, it's not done. Um, but yeah, the, the the swim values. Are interesting because swimmers would be one of the examples where they tend to get by with with a, a lower VO2 max than uh, some of the other endurance sports, probably because of the the muscle mass involved in swimming versus uh, versus running and cycling. Mm. So now, if we get to to the main question here, how trainable is VO2 max, or I, I guess how trainable has it been considered to be traditionally? And and what is the evidence behind uh, behind that belief? Yeah, that's uh, that that was kind of the question that I, I tried to attack in that uh, in the article that you were referencing. Um, and the 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 reason that I that I think it's important to uh, to to cover that, and the reason that that I decided to write the article was because when I was coming up in my uh, my undergraduate degree. It was it was drilled into us that VO2 max is is very genetically determined, and that at best you can expect to increase your VO2 max by five to fifteen percent. You know, if, if you're if you're on the lucky side, uh, if, if you're a, you're a high responder or whatever, uh, you know, whatever the case might be, you, you might be closer to fifteen percent. But for most of us, you know. Five to ten percent is as good as it's going to going to get, and my experience ha- has hasn't gelled with this at all. Um, the the research, I guess that that it was based on, is a lot of a lot of short term studies. Um, that there's a really famous uh, study by uh, Jack Daniels and, and a couple of other couple of other scientists. Um, that's often cited, and it was an eight-week study that showed a big increase in these untrained athletes' VO2 max in the first four-week period, and then a plateau after that. And uh, you know that that sort of pattern has been replicated time and time again in these in these short-term studies, where we we get you know a large increase in a fairly short period of time, and then and then a relative plateau. Um, you know, and I think that because we're limited to, or because a lot of these studies are limited to these short 
time spans, we don't really see the pattern beyond that. Um, you know, and I think that is probably responsible for a lot of these uh, these rules of thumb that uh, you know your VO two max, you're essentially going to get very close to your maximum potential within a short period of time, and it's, it's not going to go up much from there. Um, but right, right. So, so what what do you see in practice? Because you're, as you mentioned, a coach, but also you have you do testing on your athletes. So, so you have a lot of data, uh, and uh, and you have a lot of long term data. Importantly, so so what have you seen is uh, is I guess possible in the real world? Yeah. So the the article that, that you referenced was it was a case study of an athlete that that I worked with uh, over a, a little more than three years. Um, and he came in as a, as a very normal, uh, a, a very normal uh, athlete, uh, kind of middle of the pack guy. Um, and we tested him and his initial VO2 max was 53 mils per kilo. So it was, it was smack bang in that, in that average range of somebody who's, you know, relatively fit and a recreational athlete, but by no means uh, would we say based on that that he has a, a huge potential for, uh, you know, for improvement, but becoming elite. Um, over the course of three years, he increased his VO2 max from 53 mils per kilo to 74 mils per kilo. So if we think back to some of those numbers that I was uh, I was kind of referencing, um 74 is starting to get up to a, a fairly elite uh, level of performance, um, you know, kind of knocking on the door of uh, a lot of the pro pro males that, that I've tested. So that was a that was a bump of 40 percent over over those three years. So obviously a much, much greater increase than the five to 15 percent that uh, I was told during my undergrad was was what I could expect. Yeah, that that is uh, an amazing improvement, and and that's another thing, I think that uh, that gives us all hope. And did you see so referencing those Jack Daniel studies, for example, where the initial improvement was very large? Did you have any such period, or was it more a slow and steady grind in getting that up? And I realized that you probably didn't necessarily test him that frequently that you would be able to tell for sure, but what would your assumption be? Was there a period where he improved that VO2 max a lot or was it more slow and steady? Yeah, certainly with, with the test frequency, it was more a case of uh, testing a couple of times per season. So, you know, it's hard to discern exactly what happened per four weeks. But um, I have had other athletes that I've, that I've tested a little bit more frequently um, just because they were uh, – local local athletes that I was sort of experimenting on um, and yeah we, we definitely see that that large increase particularly if we're doing a high intensity cycle within a short period of time um, you know so I, I think that that adds a lot of confusion because there's there's almost two two types of increase you know there's the type of increase that you get from short duration high intensity training and then there's this kind of long steady grinding increase that uh that you get from from the volume and i think that that occurs for, for pretty much everyone um you know when when we do a, a high intensity block um you know we, we generally see a good boost but that boost plateaus out it's not sustainable over the long term right right uh, so, so what would you then uh, ascribe? Oh, sorry, uh, the the main uh, 
reason behind his improvements too that would be that sort of big volume or a long time then i i guess you're alluding to so can you get into the the type of training that that led to that that big increase over those years that you coached this athlete yeah for sure yeah i i think uh i think the the big uh the big difference or the, the big uh confusion point often comes from the fact that athletes think that they have to train at a certain point in order to improve that point. Um, you know, and, and as we were saying with, uh, with VO2 max, it, it's this composite of a lot of different things going on within the aerobic system. We've got the oxygen delivery. We've got the oxygen extraction from the muscles. And when, when we look at the muscles, it, it's all fibers within the muscles. You know, they, they, they all are helping out in terms of their ability to, to, to extract that O2 and to contribute to the O2 uptake. So, um, you know, I think when we take that perspective, it, it changes uh, it changes our view a little bit on what training is actually improving VO2 max. And, you know, my, my perspective and, uh, you know, my thought is that the, the training that we do to increase – all of the all of the variables to increase the economy for the athlete to increase the the thresholds the right training leads to improvements in in each of those to to a good degree so when we're doing a lot of low intensity training a lot of training around that first aerobic threshold we're not only improving the aerobic threshold but we're also improving all points north of that and you know VO2 max is is obviously one of those yeah 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 so uh so that uh tells us quite a, a bit already about what your view on training is and and i'm quite familiar with it because i read your blog which is another thing that we'll link to and uh, it's a very good one very well written with a lot of, of details and uh and statistics and uh and the likes that i know that a lot of listeners of this show uh, would like so definitely recommended reading so so for example for this athlete then how would you uh, structure a season and structure a mesocycle, structure a microcycle. If you go into a bit more detail, yeah. So for for this athlete, uh, he uh, one of the the other things that we tested him initially for was was his fat burning and his metabolic strength, and that was that was not a strength when we when we first first tested this athlete and. Uh, <clears throat> and that's something that I place a lot of importance on. So we spent a lot of the initial period of time over those, uh, you know, the, the first couple of years really focusing on increasing, increasing the metabolic strength, increasing the fat burning of this athlete because his goals were, uh, were long course triathlon and Ironman specifically. So, we were doing a lot of training in and around that aerobic threshold, you know, and, and, I guess it was interesting to me to see just how much training that wasn't necessarily designed to increase this athlete's VO2 max did so uh, just just vicariously through uh, you know through through kind of carryover effects from all of the the low intensity work we were doing. So we for this athlete in the beginning we were doing. Probably eight out of ten sessions a week were 
right at the aerobic threshold. We did a couple of kind of, uh, you know, speed maintenance sessions, but for the most part, it was stuck in and around that, that point, you know, within a fairly narrow, uh, narrow heart rate range. Um, and, and that continued for, for a long period of time. We, we didn't change. Are we talking, are we talking many months here? And yeah, yeah. Essentially the first two years really was, was focused on increasing the fat burning. And I could probably write another, uh, another article on, on the improvements there because they, they were equally, uh, Im- impressive. Um, but uh, yeah, for, for the first two years, he was doing just a lot of volume, a lot of work, probably heart rates. I'd have to look back at his zones, but, uh, you know, 120 to 135 beats per minute, that sort of, that sort of range. Yeah, that's that's the kind of training that I love to do. <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah, like heart I, I think it's enjoyable. I mean, you, you know, you, you hear the uh, the high intensity training advocates saying how boring it is to do uh, to do that sort of training, but I, I think uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't get that perspective. I think it's quite enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that, that's that's quite interesting, actually. That it's such a long period, and and it uh, goes to show how important patience is in endurance sports. It's a uh, it's really is a game of patience quite a, a lot of time for most athletes. And another point there that I that I guess that is important to make is that one of the consequences of constantly going too hard and concentrating above that aerobic threshold is, I guess, what you saw with this athlete that. Uh, that they have no ability to to burn fat for for fuel, so so that's one of the, the negatives. If uh, if you are an athlete that that probably goes a bit too hard in every single workout, so uh, is that something that you see a lot in the testing as well that you do? Exactly, yeah. I mean that you know he he was he was extreme on both levels, but uh, but that that pattern of an athlete who's come from a high intensity training program. And they, they come in and they get tested and oftentimes they haven't been tested before. Um, the, the metabolic side of things is generally the least impressive. So, you know, even athletes who might have a decent, uh, a decent VO2 max, their, their metabolic system is often shot after doing these extended periods of that you know, high intensity or it's not even really high intensity. You know, typically it's, it's that moderate grindy sweet spot sort of, uh, sort of training that tends to get prescribed a lot. And I, I think, uh, you know, f- from both of those physiological adaptations, the metabolic side and the VO2 max side, it can, uh, yeah, it can have a really negative effect, uh, on both of those. Mm, yeah. yeah, I have a few follow-up questions on the training, but first, one thing that uh, that I want to come back to in terms of the the trainability and how much improvements in VO2 max you can see is we're now talking about a case study, but of course, uh, as you've mentioned already, this guy was a bit of an extreme case. What are some more typical improvements that you see in in athletes from pre? Uh, training intervention to and this can can be a long period mind you of course but but how trainable do you see that vo2 max can be in more normal cases yeah so that that's that's an interesting uh question and uh i can be a little bit a little bit geeky michael Uh, i don't know if you know this i I like to yeah i i have noticed (laughs) i I like to play around with numbers and, and things like that and uh one of the things that i did when when i was putting together the case study was I pulled all of my data down from uh, 
from all athletes that I'd worked with over uh, over multi month periods and and uh, and built a, a linear model to see just what the what the average increase was over that three year period. Um, you know, so I've got basically a, a a scatter plot with a with a line going going through it to see what the average uh, average jump in VO two max for for those uh, athletes multiple tests is. And it was 24%. So the, he, he went 40% from 53 to 74 mils per kilo. So my average of all of the athletes from their worst test to their best test over that, that period of time was, was 24%, which, you know, again, is significantly greater than that five to 15% lifetime uh, in, improvement that, that's often, uh, often quoted. So, uh, you know, it gives you, Gives you a little bit of perspective, and and again, a lot of these athletes, when they come to me, they're not in the same same shape as as uh, you know the the case study guy was. They're they're either typically uh, you know they're they're already fairly good. So if you're coming in at a VO two max of sixty or sixty five, you know to to get forty percent on that might be a little bit unrealistic. Um, so you know I I think that that's Another important point to make is we we might not see exactly the same percentage jump if athletes have already you know already kind of uh, eked out a good good per, a good amount of that that potential improvement, which is what tends to happen. And certainly at the pro level, you know, you an athlete who comes in with a VO two max of seventy five, you're not going to improve that to. Uh, yeah, what forty percent would be a hundred and something? Yeah. <laughs> so of of course, and that's a, an interesting point. So so if you do you have any data or a hunch of to what kind of range that you quite often tend to be able to improve VO two max in in your age groupers? Like for males, is it to the sixty to sixty five range? Is that usually doable, or is it something else? And and correspondingly for the females, do you have some range that you think that for for the average uh, average listener, it might be possible as the the end point. Yeah, I think uh, I, I certainly think that most athletes physiologically have the ability to get to Kona qualifying uh, fitness. I, I, you know, that's sort of a a central uh, core belief that I have after uh, after working with athletes over a long period of time that. Well, you know, pro level uh, fitness might be might be a different thing, and there might be some uh, you know genetic lottery aspects to to getting to that level of fitness. Given given the right training over over a sufficient period of time, you know, most athletes are able to hit that sixty five to seventy mils per kilo uh, range. Um, you know, but again, that's the right training over over a long period of time is. Uh, is is the the caveat and is often the hardest hardest part of the the equation to actually uh you know make make happen in the real world <laughs> yeah but in saying that you i think you just became most of the listeners new favorite interviewee <laughs> you gave us all a lot of hope so that, that's great and, and hopefully your your telephone line is going to go pretty hard as well after this <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I mean, I, I could only could only call it like I see it, and uh, I I think it's it's very rare for an athlete to put in, you know, eight hundred to a thousand. If you're putting in more than a thousand hours per year and you're not qualifying for Kona, then there's 
that would be that would be very rare to see, you know. But before you start uh, making the phone line go crazy, that those are the expectations. I've certainly worked with age groupers who've put in a thousand hours in order to to hit their their kind of qualifying goal. Yeah, well, you preempted my next question, which is that everybody is going to ask now that, well, if if I only have X amount of hours to train, does does it apply to me? So, I guess, can you elaborate in general on on the training volume that it might take to to improve VO two max in general, not necessarily get to Kona, but yeah, talk about volume and how how you view it. Yeah, the I think. Uh... I think there's a, there's a paradigm at the moment, um, and it, it's probably probably largely born out of the the TSS obsession that uh, that more load equals more performance. You know, more more TSS equals equals better performance. Um, and I I think it's really important to to kind of tear that apart a little bit and uh you know and and let people know that it's it's not not the load that's going to going to lead to performance you know by if you only have x amount of hours to to train the goal shouldn't be to crank up the intensity to get more tss it's it's the right balance of different training and different energy systems that's ultimately going to lead to to the best performance um and i think that for a lot of athletes they get they get in that that mindset of if i can't do volume i'm going to do intensity and uh it's it's not an either or proposition you know there there's there's the right intensities that are going to each add a certain element to your physiology and then there's the volume that you can do w- within the context of of your greater life that's going to going to ultimately determine what level uh you get to yeah absolutely and uh i'll see if i can dig up a couple of q a episodes that i've done because i've uh, I've attacked this uh, tss obsession and i've used those exact words i believe a couple of times so so i'm totally with you on on that and uh, it's quite common to see that people think that uh well a 45 minute recovery ride is not worth anything because you only right. get nine in TSS, 19 tss from it why would you do it it's not going to percentage-wise add anything to your week but right i, I know you had uh you, you had steven seiler uh on on the show um a, a few episodes back uh, i listened to that one with great interest and uh there, there was a really good study of his that spoke to this um that that looked at essentially recreational level athletes you know they were training eight hours a week or or uh, something around that around that volume and the amount of, of zone two time for the high intensity group, I think it went up to like 40% of the total volume versus the, the low intensity group only did a very small amount in, in the silo zone two. And, you know, for all of that extra effort and for all of that kind of mid range sweet spot work that, that you would, uh, you know, that the, the zone two uh, group did, there was absolutely no improvement in performance, you know. So I think that that speaks a lot to what we're talking about. That that assumption that by cranking up the intensity and taking it from easy aerobic to moderate or even almost thresholdy sort of aerobic, that we're going to get this big performance boost. And the research and certainly my experience doesn't doesn't back that up. Yeah, and I think you you hit the nail on the head when you said that that we're trying to hit different 
energy systems and we're really looking for biological adaptations and biological stimuli to uh, to to then get some biological adaptations so it's not the the stress itself that that's the cause it's what uh, what kind of stimulus we're imposing on what system and and that's where it becomes important that uh, we have that low intensity training and that is actually a true low intensity training and, and not something in that gray zone uh, so so if we talk a little bit more about volume because I, I think a lot of people will want some specifics let's take as an example let's say you want to go to kona what do you see is quite typical for your kona athletes in terms of for example yearly or monthly training hours i i think i think 800 hours is typical if, if i had to put put a number on what what uh, a kona qualifier does um over the course of a year I would say 800 hours of training would be a would be a, a reasonable uh, average responder kind of guess, you know. And obviously that that fluctuates. So that's 16 hours a week, and obviously that that fluctuates, you know. In the in the early season, it might be 10 to 12 hours a week, and in the late season, there might be some some 20 hour plus weeks. Um, but but that uh, you know that that would be the the average responder, and certainly. I've worked with athletes who are well below that, you know, who are the proverbial get to get to Kona on ten hour a week athletes, and you know, like lucky them, they uh, they won the genetic lottery and and they're able to uh, able to do that. And then I've certainly worked with the other side of the equation as well, athletes who've had to put in more than a thousand hours in, in a year in order to uh, in order to get to that level of performance. So I think there's. There is a wide wide range in uh, in training response there, but uh, but yeah, certainly ballparking it. There's there's a, a strong correlation between the the total hours trained and the uh, and the performance level, whether that's VO two max or whether it's your Ironman time. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's nice and uh, maybe uh, deliberate by you that you answer in yearly hours because it would be quite easy to say well 16 hours per week and uh, but then the the problem with that is that uh, you might have athletes that go and do 16 hours for two weeks and think they're on the track to Kona but then that tapers off and inc- inconsistency comes in and when at the end of the year you look at your training data you actually only did 500 hours and not the 800 hours that was required so really it's that focus on the long-term uh, big picture that, that is required when it's when if you really want to to achieve a goal like that Exactly. Yeah, the, the sixteen hours sounds very easy, doesn't it? It sounds it sounds quite small, and eight hundred hours sounds quite large. So it's really that that element of consistency that's uh, that's separating the two. Yeah, yeah. So w- when it comes to the high intensity training that you do do, uh, what uh, what is it? How do you structure it into a training? program for for your athletes i know it might vary significantly of course but but can you just uh, give us an overview of how you view high intensity training yeah um that's that's a that's a great question um the one of the one of the big i guess influences on my my view of high intensity training was an australian swim coach named john carew who was the coach of Kieran Perkins, who was a uh, multiple uh, Olympic champion and, and world record holder in the, in the 1500. And uh, his take, he was very big on heart rate heart rate training. So all of the high-intensity training sets were, were done 
specific to, to given heart rates. And for Kieran, most of these heart rate ranges kind of topped out right around threshold, so right, right around threshold heart rate. Um, that said, a lot of the a lot of the types of training that he was doing were short duration. So he'd do he'd do sets of you know hundreds with thirty seconds rest, that sort of thing, um, with, with a goal of staying in and around that that threshold heart rate. Um, so the the pace might be there to max or or close to it, but the uh, the overall demand of the session was still at a threshold level. Um, and and that and a lot of other uh, you know early interval uh, interval pioneers had had a big big impact on the way I view interval training and, and the sort of stress that I want to create with interval training. So I, I tend to I tend to favour that approach for most of the year. You know we we'll, we will do some fast workouts, but generally from a, a metabolic or a total stress perspective. The, the heart rate doesn't reach very high levels. We'll, we'll control the work rest ratio to keep it keep it in and around that threshold level. Um, and oftentimes that means doing quite quite short intervals. Mm, yeah, that is very interesting. And, and that's uh, similar for well, you focus mostly on long course athletes, but if you have a short course athlete, would that be uh, the same same type of focus that you would have? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I think that the only difference is for for very short uh, short events, there's probably a, that period of sharpening, you know, where you're not doing those those shorter intervals. You're doing longer intervals where there will be significant lactate accumulation. Um, so that those blocks would become a little bit more important uh, for for, for uh, sports where the anaerobic system is important. But yeah, uh, yeah for, for us, I think for the most part, um, those sort of intervals they don't create a lot of stress. They're something you can you can maintain week after week, and uh, and they, they do enough to preserve uh, the, the top end, which which is important for uh, you know the, the long term development of the athlete. We want to stay in touch with those fibers, and we want to want to make sure we're not not losing that over time. Yeah, I guess uh, just thinking about it and uh, speculating on my part, not uh, being as well versed in this as you, but uh, I guess those types of of workouts they they will keep the lactate levels just like they keep the heart rate levels low. They will keep the lactate levels fairly fairly low and in in check, but but you will still have that stimulus of the neuromuscular system because you are moving fairly quickly and activating a lot of muscle fiber. So so you get uh, quite a lot of. Uh, good things without as much of the bad if you uh, if you look at it that way i guess yeah exactly yeah we, we've certainly done some some lactate uh, measurement during those sorts of sessions and you know it's typically a sort of four millimole session um you know so it's, it's very much a threshold session both in lactate and the heart rate as you said and it's not uh yeah there's there's not a lot of uh a lot of acidosis not a lot of uh kind of central demand to you know it doesn't tire the athlete out like a like a session of you know 10 1000s or something on the track would 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 tire the athlete out so i think uh i think it's a great high high value with relatively low risk type of way to approach speed work yeah definitely sounds like it and and what's your view do you use things like the long grinding sweet spot tempo workouts uh much at all uh, that you talked about before at any point of the training cycle or is that something that you generally avoid 
Yeah, I think I think that probably represents the other uh, the other category of, of high intensity training, or what I would call high intensity training. You know, for, for many folks, it's uh, yeah, not just their non-low, daily training, not low intensity. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, so those would be the the two sessions, uh, the the two higher intensity sessions of the week, a, a speed session, and then something that's um, in in that moderate uh, moderate range where it, it's often big gear you know it's often a, at a higher resistance um and and you know I'll, I'll manipulate those a little bit depending on the athlete so if we get an athlete where we're trying to significantly improve their specific endurance we might pay a little bit more attention to to the the those moderate sessions you know those sweet spot sessions um versus the speed sessions and and vice versa you know if we get an athlete who is is very good at grinding it out but maybe has a little bit of a hard time accessing that top end we will uh we'll cut back on the on the the sweet spot for lack of a better word uh sessions and increase the the emphasis on those speed workouts yeah yeah that makes sense and for the low intensity training you mentioned for the case study uh person that you had been spending most of the slow intensity sessions right around that first uh, threshold uh, lt1 or the aerobic threshold is that typically the case or are there athletes where you prescribe some sessions at the first threshold but some other are pure recovery sessions just go super easy or how do you basically distribute the sessions within that low intensity zone yeah, I think I think uh, the, the answer would be that it is typical. I, you know, the, by far and away, the the bulk of the training sessions that I that I prescribe are in and around the aerobic threshold. Um, you know, plus or minus sort of five to ten beats on either side. Um, that said, I, I think that recovery sessions serve an important point in getting response from the training. You know, I don't see recovery work as training in itself. I see it as Almost sharpening the saw in a in a Stephen Covey sort of uh, sort of way of looking at it, you know that by by doing the recovery work when we do the serious training and, and by serious training I'm including the low intensity uh, aerobic threshold training sessions we get more bang bang for the buck uh, from that work. So I definitely think both both are important. Mm, okay. Uh, and for the training execution, you mentioned they're using heart rate a lot. Is is that always the primary metric? And uh, if is there a place for using power, pace, uh, RP, or a combination of them in in certain types of sessions? Yeah, the, the way I typically approach it is uh, for, for the first part of the season, the early season, it'll, it will all be heart rate based. And then over time, as we progress towards the the, the A race of the season. We'll start doing more power and pace work, uh, generally uh, kind of revolving around the goal pace of of the uh, of the A race. So you know, in the beginning, that might be sweet spot sessions for an Ironman athlete because we're expecting their fitness to increase over uh, over those months. But uh, the, the power would still be in and around that that date pace or goal pace for uh, for the athlete. Right. Yeah, uh, and. Uh... In terms of uh, training zones, then do you, do you use them, or do you prescribe always prescribe specific heart rate ranges or power ranges? How do you work with that? And uh, and can you talk about the reference points as well you have for your 
zones? Is it always the first and second thresholds or uh, anything else that you might be using there as reference points? Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm a big fan and maybe a little little dictatorial in uh, insisting that athletes get regular testing done. So, um, you know, the the zones that we get out of out of the the testing, whether it's lactate or metabolic, is you know they those turn points uh, are, are absolutely essential in my in my mind to to setting good good training zones. So. Um, you know, we'll be doing multiple times per year, getting the athlete into the lab or, or getting the athlete with lactate data um, to, to kind of check in on where those critical points on, on the curve are. Um, and certainly the, the, the most important one that I'm interested in is to see where that aerobic threshold is on, on the curve because, as I said, a lot of the sessions are going to be in and around that point. So I want to see how that's shifting over time and, you know, the, the zones that we use will be, will be very much centered around where that point is on the lactate curve. Um, the, the second, second threshold as well is, uh, you know, is obviously important because we want to be able to, uh, to prescribe the right intensity for some of that sustained aerobic work. And I don't want to be telling athletes that it's a threshold workout when it's really a kind of high intensity, you know, eight millimole uh, workout just by mistake sort of thing. So I think, I think knowing both of those points is really important. And do you do the testing, lactate testing for swimming as well? Because it's doable, of course, but it's uh, uh, definitely more unusual for athletes to go through that testing on swimming. So is that something that you also do? Or if not, how do you work with swimming? Yeah, with, with swimming, certainly it, it's more challenging um, for, for athletes that I have physical access to. Um, yeah, we, we would definitely do uh, do the lactate testing for that. I mean, it's, it's it's not terribly challenging. You know, you just keep keep the earlobe under the cap and then uh, and then uh, spike it every uh, every every couple of hundred sort of thing. You do a seven by two hundred test and uh, get get the data that way, but. Yeah, certainly for athletes who who are working, uh, you know, remotely, it's a little bit a little bit tougher to to get that uh, to get that dialed in. So we have to approximate things um, a little bit more and use you know more traditional percentage of, of zones. But again, if we you know if we at least if I have a fair idea of what the athlete's curve looks like, you get a sense of what type of athlete it is, and you're generally able to to dial in the percentages a little bit better and a little bit less generically than uh you know what you would if you didn't have a lactate curve in the bike and run yeah that, that makes sense and and on the swim i guess uh can what types of that because that's i feel where a lot of athletes can go the most wrong because it's quite often very challenging to like you have a lot of athletes that might not even think that they have more than one single gear when it comes to swimming and that's probably that gray zone gear so, so how do you work with uh, with that and uh, work in that uh, aerobic threshold work, and then potentially some high intensity work, but making sure that you get that large volume at the low intensity that you've been talking about when it comes to swimming, because this is something that would be quite m- even more counterintuitive to the way that most athletes are used to training. I think when it comes to swimming. Yeah, absolutely. I could, couldn't agree more. I think uh, for, for a lot of athletes they're they're always training at anaerobic threshold or very close to it on the swim whether they intend to or not you know just 
just through uh, a lack of technical ability. Um, so, you know, addressing both of those sides of the equation, I think, is really important in the pool. Um, getting the athlete able to swim at very, very low efforts and having the technical ability to do that, which, you know, often comes down to things like getting the breathing dialed in so that they're not uh, expending a whole lot of energy every time they, they lift their head to get a breath. You know, th- those sort of very simple uh, technical skills can can give the athlete access to to lower ranges of output so we can start to do more uh, more aerobic threshold uh, work. You know, whereas for a lot of athletes who don't have that ability, no matter what they do, they're always going to be in that, you know, Sila zone two or, uh, you know, Friel zone three, four sort of range when, when they swim. And I think it's really important to, to widen that range as much as possible. Yeah, I, I guess you can use uh, some swim toys. You can use a pool boy or fins to to help with that. But but also, of course, you want to work on that technical ability at the same time, so uh, so that you can then uh, choose whether you use tools or or not, uh, depending on what your uh, your ultimate goals are with with that type of training session. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think tools can become a bit of a crutch, so it's uh, it's important to to develop the ability to swim easy and not expend a, not have a high heart rate when you're doing that, you know, and, and I think a lot, for a lot of triathletes, when they want to swim easy, they just put the pool boy in, you know, and that, that's, uh, yeah, that's probably not, not ideal. Hmm. Do you use heart rate? Do you have a lot of athletes that, uh, that have the, the new, the swimming compatible heart rate monitors? And do you look at that data a lot? Is, uh, is it something that you use in your coaching? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, we, we do, we do a heart rate test every block with, the, with the athletes that I work with in the pool. So, um, you know, the, I, I definitely want to know what, uh, what pace they're at for, for, you know, their low intensity heart rate and for their, and for their close to threshold heart rate. So I can get a bit of a, bit of a sense of how those things relate, you know, because again, that, that tells me a lot about the type of swimmer that they are, you know, whether they're technically proficient at those low intensities um, or whether they're more a one gear, one gear swimmer. So I think that's a really important, uh, important metric to have to, to see just, just how much uh, physiological cost it's taking them to swim at a slow speed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have one athlete that I coach that uses the swimming heart rate monitor and, and I've just started to find it really, really valuable to see, see that heart rate data. And, uh, it's definitely a, a massive, uh, boost in terms of the information that you, you get as a coach. And, and perhaps that's something that, uh, even self coach athletes should consider investing in if, uh, if they're going to give this type of training a go to, to actually get a look at their swimming heart rates. And now, uh, there are even like the polar i think uh arm strap that measures heart rate so you don't have to use a chest strap if you don't want to and, and there are various options now so they're starting to become more available so so that's something to consider for for the listeners yeah they're great great for races too they really come into their own in uh in the race environment because i think athletes on the whole typically underestimate by uh you know 20 to 30 beats just what their heart rate is when when they're swimming in a race race situation so i think that's a really really interesting thing for people to look at after uh you know after they've they've done an ironman or a half ironman just how high the heart rate was in in the water Mm, yeah 
Uh, all right, Alan, this has been absolutely fascinating. And uh, we'll link to, of course, to the previous interview as well, which was uh, a deep dive into testing, lactate testing and uh, and metabolic testing and all those things. So, so definitely listeners, go and check that episode out uh, after you listen to this. Is there anything that we didn't cover related to this topic that you that you want to discuss still? No, I mean, uh, I think uh, it probably goes along with what we were talking about in, in the last topic, and that is the uh, in, in the last talk that we did, and that is the importance of getting into the lab and getting this data. You know, I think that the, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of talk at the moment about ways we can approximate these these lab measures and things like that, but. Uh, but nothing beats actually getting into the lab, seeing what what metrics you're currently at, doing training, changing things, and then going back into the lab and seeing where you're at again. You know, so the the case study hopefully will uh, will convince and com- and will prompt people into wanting to know what their current value is, and and you know, experimenting themselves and and trying some of the techniques that we're talking about to see if they can uh, they can elicit similar gains. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Definitely super important to, to actually get into the lab and, and get get real numbers. Uh, and finally, is there anything that you that you want to uh, to plug? Do you have uh, coaching slots available for listeners that are interested, or is there anything that you're working on? Any projects that you're excited about at the moment that you that you want to share with us? I, I have I have a project that I'm very very excited about, Michael. But uh, we'll have to talk about that at a later time. It's uh, it's a little under wraps at the moment, but uh, yeah, there's some some exciting uh, exciting things in the works that uh, I'll definitely be uh, divulging a little bit more on in the in the coming months. All right. Well, you'll absolutely get an opportunity to share it here when when the time comes. So thank you once again. It was a pleasure having you on. Thanks, Michael. Likewise. I really hope that you enjoyed that interview and I have a few key takeaways here that I noted down. The first one is patience, how important it is to be patient, to stick to the plan and to follow through on the plan with great discipline, not uh, stray from it and start to go harder when you're not meant to go hard, etc. The second takeaway that I noted down is that there's no shortcut. If you did not win the genetic lottery, and uh, it's very sad, I know this because (laughs) I know I didn't, Uh, but you can still get really competitive. But what you need to do instead is to just put in the work. And a common theme that we uh, talk about is to not look so much at your training week, but look at your training year. If you put in the work consistently over a training year and that training is the right training for you, that's where you start to see dramatic differences and improvements. And finally, testing. Proper testing takes much of the guesswork out of the planning process and finding what training is right for you. And this is another common theme. But when it comes to triathlon budgeting, investing primarily in high return on investment things like proper testing, coaching, video analysis, and so on. These are the investments that you want to do because they are the ones that you will get the most return on. It is really quite simple. All right, so you can find the show notes as usual on thattriathlonshow.com. Just click through to this particular episode. And the show notes will, of course, have links to the related episodes, including episode 79, which was the previous interview with Alan Cousins on lab testing, and episode 177 that we mentioned, polarized training with Dr. Steven Seiler. 
In the next episode, I interview Professor Andy Jones from the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. He has also worked with Nike on the Breaking 2 project. He's worked with world record holder Paula Radcliffe. That's the, the female's marathon record that we're talking about. And he has done such an amazing amount of work in academia, in performance physiology. He's perhaps most well-known for his work in nitrate supplementation or beetroot. His Twitter handle is actually beetrootandy. So, of course, we'll talk about nitrate loading and how that applies to triathlon and endurance sports in general. How should you nitrate load? Who should do it? How much performance benefits can you get? But we'll definitely get into some other topics as well on the various areas of expertise that Andy has since, uh, yeah, I don't want to miss that opportunity when he has such a wealth of knowledge in various areas. So stay tuned for that next week. Of course, uh, in the meantime, there will be a Q&A episode coming out on Thursday. Do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already so that you don't miss anything. One final piece of house cleaning item for those of you that uh, buy training plans on scientifictriathlon.com. Uh, please bear in mind that uh, you can, we have the training plans on training peaks as well. But if you want to use the tri- plan on training peaks, then you should not buy the plan directly on the website, but you should click the link on that training plans page that says something along the lines of get this plan on training peaks. And that link will take you to the Training Peaks website where you can actually buy the Training Peaks version of the plan because the Training Peaks version can only be sold on Training Peaks website, on the Training Peaks website itself. And actually, if you do buy it through Training Peaks, then you can just email us, email support at scientifictraffron.com and you will get the PDF version of the plan for no extra cost. Uh, what happens if you buy the plan directly on scientifictriathlon.com is that you will get the PDF version. And it's important that we have that available because not everybody uses Training Peaks. Uh, but uh, then you can't use that within Training Peaks itself. And it's not as simple as, as directly transferring that training plan to Training Peaks. So uh, keep that in mind if you're interested in training plans. Uh, which if you are interested in training plans or for that matter in coaching or the other services that we offer, be sure to check out scientifictriathlon.com to learn more. Big thanks to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Get your first box or tube for free with the promo code thattriathlonshow, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Get 20% off your entire order, whether it's wetsuits, trisuits, high-performance eyewear, or any of the other product lines that they offer with the promo code TTS, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.